Hello, Amanda. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Um, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad, all things considered. I must admit, though, having said that, I'm a little bit uh, a little bit low. I've just been watching a rather disturbing video, a short video clip, sad video clip of a buzzard uh, being shot out of the air uh, on the board on the boundary of the RSPB Northwood Hill Reserve in Kent. Uh, and it sort of kind of makes you really sad, doesn't it, the fact that uh, this day and age this is still going on, uh, and you know, raptors and other uh, other creatures are being persecuted in this way. It's absolutely shocking. And it's a, it, it's sad, really, isn't it? Because we're sort of coming to the end of our climate justice series. But, but you know, this is a slightly more sombre discussion that we'll be having with guests today. But one that I think really highlights how important it is that we cover these topics on the podcast, because while we love to cover um, more positive, exciting, jolly things like bees and beavers and reintroduction of species, we do we can't shy away from the fact that there are some real issues around um, uh, climate change, but more importantly, also around nature and conservation and the crimes that are committed by some people as they not just don't respect the land, but they don't respect the creatures on it either. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, um, yes, we, we should celebrate nature. We should be upbeat about nature. But at the same time, we also need to be realistic about the threats to nature from a range of different quarters. Uh, and the sad thing is it's and some of these threats are coming from people uh, who are out for their own gain for one reason or another they've decided that they're going to um, uh, you know they're going to persecute nature which is really sad yeah so uh, more serious but we hope um, inspiring listening on today's episode I think so I hope so and I'm sure there'll be lots of things that people can take away and do uh, and uh, positive action to be taken as ever we like to be positive on the pod indeed planet pod essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And as we come to the closing episode in our autumn series about climate justice, it seems fitting that we are talking to two conservationists and activists whose organisations are on the very front line of fighting for justice for UK wildlife on land and sea by exposing and challenging not just wildlife crime, but other areas of threats to our wildlife. They and their colleagues are prepared to be difficult, controversial, and sometimes put themselves at risk to ensure the rest of us can enjoy the beauty of seeing a raptor swoop over a moor or a dolphin leap from the waters around our shores. It's a huge pleasure to welcome my guest today. Dr. Ruth Tingay is an award-winning conservationist and one of the three directors of Wild Justice established in 2019 to fight for wildlife. She's studied birds of prey on five continents with a particular research focus on endangered eagle species. She's a former international director and past president of the Raptor Research Foundation and has been campaigning against the illegal persecution of birds of prey in the UK for a decade. She's also a formidable speaker and blogger. Ruth, welcome to Planet Pod. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for the invitation. Our second guest, Richard Benwell, has spent many years fighting for stronger laws to stop climate change and recover nature for everyone. As well as working in the House of Commons as a parliamentary clerk and for DEFRA, he led and won green campaigns for the RSPB and the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, before becoming CEO of Wildlife and Countryside Link in 2019. Richard, that's an impressive CV. Thanks for making the time to join us on Planet Pod. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So here I am in the company of two seasoned and successful campaigners, and I hardly know where to begin, really, as I have a list of questions as long as your arm. 
Um, but I wondered if I could start perhaps with you, Richard, as many people may not be aware of um, WCL and they may not know what your organisation does, although I suspect they'll know a lot of the member organisations that belong to you. So could you just tell us a little bit about what it does for, and, and how it works? It's no surprise, really, that folk haven't heard of Wildlife and Countryside Link because we're a coalition that's focusing all of our attention on government and changing the law and policy to make sure that it's as strong as it possibly can be for animal welfare, for uh, people's health and well-being and access to nature and uh, for improving the state of wildlife in the UK. So we are a coalition of 57 uh, environmental organisations dedicated to improving wildlife, animal welfare and well-being. So the sorts of organisations that are members of you are organisations like Ruth's, but also perhaps bigger ones that we would have heard of, like the RSPB and, and others like that. And they join you. So you give them an extra voice. Is that how it works? That's right. We, we try to create a space where organisations can come together behind strong advocacy positions. Uh, and we speak with a single voice to government so that it's quite clear that the whole nature sector stands together on particular points of law. And obviously, Ruth, um, as I said, your organisation, Wild Justice, the one that one of your, your founder director of, that, that is a member. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we get into some of the meaty discussion that I know we want to have about raptors and raptor preservation? So tell us a little bit about Wild Justice, because you have quite a high social media presence, but not everyone might have heard of you. So Wild Justice uh, was set up, we actually set up in October of 2018. Um, there are three of us, as uh, me, a guy called Mark Avery, who used to work at the RSBB for a long time as conservation director, and then some guy you might have heard of called Chris Packham. Oh uh, yeah, him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the three of us uh, knew one another, we've known each other for, for a few years, um, mainly through campaigning on the Hen Harrier, against Hen Harrier persecution um, and other raptor stuff. And um, we decided that uh, although we were all doing our own thing, sometimes we were working together, we decided that we could probably be quite a formidable force if we came together on certain things. Um, and the thing that uh, the catalyst really for, for Wild Justice beginning was uh, a series of wildlife mm. crime cases in Scotland um, that were all progressing. And then one after another in a very short space of time, you know, just over, uh, I think it was about a three month period, um, each of these cases were dropped by the Crown Office, by the prosecution, um, for what I would consider quite unsatisfactory reasons. Um, and we were just so frustrated by it. It's, it's so difficult to get a, a prosecution anyway, and I'm sure we'll come on to this. Um, so to, to have these five very high-profile cases dropped one after another, um, we just were talking about it and we thought, well, actually, we need to get together and uh, put our heads together um, and see what we can do. So that's, that's really how we started. And it's a really important subject that we're talking about here isn't it because people possibly haven't thought much about wildlife crime and they probably you know I know if you're passionate about the countryside or you're passionate about nature or you're passionate about a particular species you know you will know about that species but you may not necessarily think about it being in danger in a deliberate sense you may think oh well you know there's climate change is, is endangering our habitats it's endangering um, ecosystems so some of our natural species are at risk of, of extinction and we, we, we've covered some of these subjects on the pod and we had rewilding britain on recently and they were talking about the, you know the species um, at risk for extinction 
but they people may not have thought, oh well, you know, they're at risk of somebody killing them or disturbing their 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 breeding cycle or deliberately stealing eggs or something. So so I think it's a subject that doesn't get as much coverage as perhaps it should. And I know Richard, your organisation does produce a regular report, don't you? I mean, the kind of you know wildlife crime report each year. The studies. How big an issue is it in the UK in terms of just the number of of incidents or the the fact that how widespread is it that there are crimes against wildlife happening? It's it's hugely widespread, uh, Amanda, and it goes across so many different species and through so many different walks of life. So when when you hear wildlife crime, you might think of the kind of deliberate killing of a bird of prey that uh, sometimes hits the headlines. And you're absolutely right. That's an abominable crime and one that we need to clamp down on. But it's not all of it. We think of things like uh, the destruction of bat roosts uh, during development. Uh, That's big, sometimes corporate uh, crime against wildlife. We think of things like uh, the illegal taking of uh, fish without license um, in our rivers or around our coasts. We think of things like hair coursing and hunting. Uh, You said deliberate earlier, and, and sometimes it's not even deliberate. There are uh, instances at the moment, you know, where people are out trying to enjoy nature and they don't realise that they're not allowed to dig up wildflowers, for example, or um, uh, pick a lot of fungus, things like things that can be really positive, like the trend toward wild foraging at the moment can actually uh, take people into uh, doing things that aren't aren't legal. Uh, So there's a huge uh, and and widespread uh, and varied uh, world, a spectrum of wildlife crime from the sort of uh, big corporate crime from uh, development destruction of habitat for newts and amphibians and reptiles through to uh, the illegal trade in wildlife uh, where people are maybe smuggling eggs or or, um, wild animals from country to country. Uh, We can think of the kind of uh, illegal hunting that you might see with with dogs or foxes or uh, badger baiting uh, and that sort of thing, right down to those more uh, apparently innocuous but still really important activities uh, like uh, like to dig up wildflowers, for example. But I can absolutely see that because some of these species are incredibly rare. And and obviously, you know, one of the impacts of the pandemic, even when we're not in a state of lockdown, is that people have been much more home-based. So therefore they've been forced out into the countryside to get their exercise where they possibly normally wouldn't have done. And that has a a beneficial effect. Obviously, people are better for being out in the fresh air, but also they're getting to understand nature. I say oh. the downside of that is they might be doing things that they inadvertently didn't realise were, were illegal. And I'm sure you're not condemning somebody for inadvertently picking some fungus. But I think <laughs> it's an important point, though, isn't it? Because if we all engage in these activities, then we will denude natural habitats of the vital, um, you know, resources that the animals and other plants need to survive. So, so we can't well, we don't want to actually, you know, lock anyone up for, for picking the wrong kind of fungus or for foraging inadvertently. Equally, we do need to raise much more awareness, don't we? I think that's probably the issue there, isn't it? It is. And there's a whole world of difference between somebody going out with a gun to shoot a bird of prey because they want to look after their um, uh, grouse hunting interests to somebody who's going out and enjoying um nature right now Uh, and uh, I don't want to discourage anybody from going out and uh, enjoying the wildflowers and indeed feel free to pick some other flowers uh, 
really it was about uh, digging digging up uh, and uh, taking stuff home or uh, yeah. going too far that's the problem and there's brilliant advice on plant life uh, websites I think they suggest that if you're out picking uh, a, a reasonable thing to do is think of of one in 20 from what you can find uh, and please enjoy all that lovely wonderful wildlife that you can see out there. Yeah, absolutely. Most of it's much better in its natural environment, which is exactly the point about raptors, about which you're so passionate, Ruth, isn't it? I mean, they belong in our skies. They don't belong, you know, in in a dead bundle at someone's feet. Tell us a little bit about what the situation is with with kind of raptor persecution in the UK at the moment. Um, well, it's, it's interesting, just going back to your uh, previous question about people not, not really knowing about wildlife crime. Um, when I first... Uh, started working in the UK on birds of prey. I've been working abroad for 20 years on birds of prey, uh, and I deliberately uh, avoided working in the UK because I didn't think there was a conservation issue with birds of prey here, didn't know about it, and I thought my uh, time and resources would be better used in countries where they had an issue. Um, so it was completely by accident, really. Uh, I... I started working in Scotland um, in 2004 doing some eagle research, just doing uh, some wind farm stuff as well. And I'd been completely unaware of the scale of, of raptor persecution in the UK. And it actually shocked me that uh, here was me, somebody who works in that field, you know, who's supposed to be an expert, who didn't have a clue that this was going on in, in my own country. Um, and I worked with quite a lot of people in the Scottish Raptor Study Group over a, a period of years. So, um, specialist volunteers who monitor birds of prey, and a lot of them have been doing it for decades. So they really know their stuff. And the more I talked to these people and kept hearing these stories about um, birds being poisoned, eagles being shot, goshawks being shot off the nest, um, the more I realised that this this was um, not widely known um, and it's it's the predominant reason why I started writing the blog the Raptor Persecution mm. UK blog back in 2010 because by that point I had realized the extent of what's going on um, and I also realized that uh, a lot of people were completely unaware of it and, and I thought if they became aware of it they would be horrified um, and it would put more pressure on government to do something about it. So I've been doing that for um, just coming up to 11 years now. <laughs> um, and even now, uh, you know, the, the blog is, is just coming up to 7 million hits. So it's getting quite a lot of attention. But even now, it is still a very little known crime um, mm. in, in terms of, of the big picture, if you like. So there's a lot more work to do. And it's interesting that you said you'd worked abroad for a long time. Do you, I mean, is it that our laws are just less strict? Because I'm kind of at a loss as to why someone who deliberately shoots a bird out of its nest, and the very thought of that is making me feel slightly sick, actually, I have to say. Um, it, surely that's a really clearly identifiable crime and that person could be brought to justice. Is it that the laws are just not, not strong enough? Are the deterrents not strong enough? And is it better somewhere else in the world than, than it is here in the UK? That's a really uh, interesting set of questions, and I could sit here for probably six or seven hours and talk about that. Um, the laws are there in this country. Uh, the big problem, as, as far as I'm concerned, is lack of enforcement. 
Um, okay. We've got huge problems with enforcement in this country for all sorts of reasons. Um, a lot of it is lack of resources of the police. Police have got other priorities, although they do prioritise some wildlife crime. Um, raptor persecution is one of those national wildlife crime priorities. Uh, and you do, in some forces, you do have specialist officers who are trained to deal with, with these kinds of, of crimes. But that's not the case across the board. Um, it's quite inconsistent. In some forces are very, very good. Other forces are hopeless. Um, so the enforcement is an issue. Um, the location of a lot of these crimes is also a problem. Um, you know, a lot of these crimes are taking place in big remote areas, hill areas, where there are very few witnesses. Um, and normally what you find in, in, the, in the case of raptor persecution, what you find is the aftermath of the crime. You don't very often see the crime taking place, uh, but a, you know, a passing hillwalker might find the corpse of a, of a golden eagle, for example, lying next to um, a poisoned mm -hmm. bait. And then it's, it's quite obvious that something's gone on here. Um, but then you have to try and get a phone signal. You have to try and get the police to respond. Uh, they, may, they may not be able to respond and they have other things going on. Um, they may not be able to respond for several days. And, and by that time, whoever has laid that poison bait has the opportunity to go back mm. onto the hill and remove all the evidence. So there's all sorts of issues around uh, fighting raptor persecution in the UK. And that's just, just on the enforcement side. When, when you get to the, to the actual prosecution and sentencing side, uh, there are even more problems there. Uh, it's really rare to get a, a prosecution mm. and when you get one uh, and it's successful, uh, that's quite rare, but then the sentencing is applied uh, pretty inconsistently across the board. You know, you, you could have one judge who would give a community service order for a poisoning offence and then you could have an identical offence in a different court with a different judge with different expertise and different experience who might go for a £5,000 fine. You know, it's completely inconsistent. And that's partly to do with the infrequency of prosecutions and the, the lack of expertise of, of these magistrates. You know, they're not seeing a lot of wildlife crimes coming before them, so they don't really know what to do with them. Um, if you had... A, a special court that dealt with wildlife crime that had specialist judges who knew what they were doing. Um, I think you'd see uh, you'd see a big difference. I think also one of the one of the biggest problems is the people who are committing these crimes know that the chances of being caught and prosecuted are very very slim. There's no deterrent there for them, so of course they're going to take the risk. Yeah. So there's a number of issues there, aren't there? There's an issue there about, about land management and people's relationship with it. I mean, and obviously, you know, birds of prey are protected under the Wildlife Countryside Act. But, but, but if, as you say, you know, as you said, Richard, if it's on your grouse moor and you're not going to get caught doing it, you do it. So there's part of it is an issue of attitude, isn't it? And, and something we really need to, to change, convince people that this is not just wrong in terms of breaking the law, but wrong as a crime against the planet. But there's also, I would think, probably an issue in here about political will 
um, you know, is there really a political will and an understanding and a, and a, and a desire from, from, from our policymakers and our politicians to actually hold people to account? And I, and, and, and I want to ask you about it, Richard, because obviously, you know, you've kicked around the House of Commons, so you understand how these things work. But, but, but I'm minded of that, that, that law that came out when we brought in the rule of six. And it was interesting that one of the small exceptions to the rule of six were people who wanted to go out and shoot grouse. So, so my sense is that perhaps the political... Our political masters have a different perspective about the countryside and how we relate to it. So, Richard, is there enough of a political will there? Is there enough of a, a desire amongst policymakers and politicians to really get to grips with, with this and other sorts of wildlife crime, the sorts that you, you were talking about a moment ago? There hasn't been to date, no. Um, it's always low on the priority list uh, for a variety of reasons. As Ruth was saying, we just don't know the scale of a lot of wildlife crime. It's really hard to spot, it's really hard to record, and the police aren't required to, to uh, notify and record those crimes on a systematic basis. So we only really see the tip of the iceberg of the problem. And unless it's being brought out there and put in front of politicians' faces, then it will always remain quite low on the priority list. And, you know, it's, it's telling that some of these laws that we rely on to prosecute wildlife crime are 200 years old. What is it? The, uh, the Night Poaching Act uh, and the penalties that go along with them are similarly old fashioned and weak and out of step with what we need to prove a real disincentive for wildlife crime. And that applies across the board. You know, it's still profitable for um, somebody who's interested in illegal angling to, to try to uh, uh, bring in their carp that's worth however many thousand pounds. I was hearing a case about somebody strapping eggs to themselves and, you know, the, the, to try to bring them in. I think they were kestrel and um, osprey eggs. They're thousands of pounds an egg uh, and the penalties just don't stack up to make a proper disincentive for doing this. Yeah. So that, that, that need to update the law uh, has uh, fallen by the wayside again. What the Law Commission looked at wildlife law five years ago now, I think it was, uh, and government promised to do something about it, but it's been delayed and delayed with Brexit and elections and other things. It's always pushed down the pecking order. So how do we get this up to the top of political priorities? Well, partly it's about helping people to express how much they are um, exercised about this, these, some of these outrageous crimes. And partly it's about... Uh, really expressing the scale of the problem in the best science that we can muster. So some of these things have severe population level effects on, on wildlife. Hen Harrier is a case in point, but it's not the only one. Uh, so, and using the kinds of uh, expert science that Natural England was able to bring to bear to trace those Hen Harriers over uh, however many years it was to prove the correlation between uh, disappearances and uh, the, the, the moorland management where often the problems were occurring. It's that kind of evidence that we need to bring to bear to, to put in front of politicians to show that there's an irrefutable case for change. There should be a wildlife and welfare bill coming before Parliament next year. So this is a really important opportunity for us all to gather those um, uh, those arguments about which wildlife crimes need to change, which sentences need to be tougher, where we need to tackle things like uh, lead poisoning and shooting and uh, uh, use of snares and traps and glues, whatever it might be. We need to have all those arguments readied and rallied for the bill next year and take this opportunity 
that, that comes only once a decade, really, to get something new and stronger on the statute book. PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. I think that's absolutely crucial. And, and you know, lead and shot is a subject close to the pod's heart. And we did a whole campaign with, with, with Sasha about that. But I think that, you know, a couple of things occurred to me about what you were saying. One is I really want to ask you about what you think the impact of Brexit will be in moving away from European legislation, because we know there are some rights and some protections within the EU that we will be able to duck out of if we choose not to, to, to follow through them properly. But I say the other one is the broader sense. I mean, do you really, I mean, you know, forgive me for being cynical, but we have a government that doesn't really exhibit any care for the for the environment generally. And we've got a new 10-point green plan out, which is woefully lacking in lots of areas. It's not just underfunded, it's ill thought through. We've got a we've got a situation where, you know, we have a, a prime minister who has encouraged us all to build despite the newt lovers so we haven't really got that sense of real political commitment across any part of, of the government I don't think in terms of, of protecting protecting species you know we have a government that's actually perpetrating mass killing of badgers so so I know that the, the bill will be really really important but 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 with such a sort of biased parliament in the sense of the one party controlling so many of the the votes and you know, having such a huge majority, is there any hope of a bill like that, A, getting through, and B, having sufficient teeth to actually make a, a difference? So, I mean, that would be my first question to you, Richard. And then my second is, and to you, Ruth, as well, what do you think leaving the European Union will do? Because will that weaken our, our, the laws and response and the protection that we have towards our wild creatures? That's a, a huge question. And there's, there's just simply no doubt that environmental protection and wildlife crime in particular aren't as high a political priority as they need to be, particularly to avert the, the climate and, and, and ecological crises. There's just no doubt about that. And that's not a party political statement. It's true across the board. Um, will our laws be weaker when we leave the European Union? Well, uh, it's, it's not an inevitability, but things aren't filling me with optimism at the moment, let's say. Crucial um, institutions like the European Court of Justice that have proved essential time and again in upholding environmental law uh, uh, won't be there anymore to provide that supranational level of oversight, of legal compliance. And the Office of Environmental Protection that the government's bringing in in its environment bill as yet uh, doesn't uh, seem to offer the same level of independent um, scrutiny and accountability for government that we need, nor do the targets that the government's proposing to set to replace EU targets for environmental improvement yet meet the standard of um, the, the kind of action we need to turn around nature's decline. And there are just a couple of, of specifics that I'd like to mention if that's okay. So one, one area of uh, unlawful destruction of um, wildlife that uh, the, the Prime Minister himself has uh, made reference to in his build, build, build speech with his reference to those pesky newts um, is, is the destruction of, of wildlife by development. Uh, and that can be something that's uh, licensed and legitimised with um, uh, conservation licences as development happens. 
but the government's bringing in planning proposals now that uh, suggest that instead of doing site-based survey work for new developments, which is absolutely critical for picking up um, your protected species uh, and your, your important habitats, instead of doing that kind of case-by-case -case deliberation of planning that we do now, government's proposing to do things at a more strategic level, it calls it. Of course, it's very sensible to build in environmental considerations earlier in the planning system and to do more mapping upstream. But are we really going to be able to spot uh, those critical points of, of uh, wildlife vulnerability from a, a map that's done at the sort of macro level? No, we're not. And already developers are really gung-ho uh, about the kinds of wildlife uh, destruction and habitat destruction that comes with, with, with development. You see developers accepting fines for dis destroying hundreds of years old hedgerows rather than take the effort to preserve them. Those planning proposals bring um, real risk of further infringements and we're absolutely trying to stave that off to keep the proper ecological investigation that we need to make sure that uh, further destruction, unlawful destruction of things like bat roosts, uh, amphibians, reptiles, doesn't um, get speeded up by project speed. Uh, and if I can very quickly mention the other one, uh, in the Environment Bill, the government's just put forward some proposals for changing the way that destruction of protected species is licensed in the UK. Uh, it's planning to introduce a new reason for destroying protected species of overriding public interest. Uh, that's basically giving a license for developments to destroy protected species. This is something that in the past has had to be uh, defended through a conservation license. And it's something that in the European legislation requires imperative reasons of overriding public interest. The government's gone for a lower standard. So again, it looks like from our first assessment that there's a levelling down of protection for nature as we leave the European Union. And that won't be illegal, but it, it, it's certainly um, linked to that, uh, that, that crucial issue of, of legal protection for, uh, for vulnerable species. Ruth, that's a gloomy picture, isn't it really? Is there anything heartening from your perspective? I mean, have we got something that we can hang on to that makes us feel that we might possibly grope towards a proper solution or there's something that people can do perhaps to change the situation as it is currently? Well, I, I kind of uh, have to agree with a lot of what Richard's just said. I'm not filled with optimism about what's going on. The slight glimmer of, of light that, that I see uh, is actually in Scotland when, when you're looking at the Scottish government um, who are streets ahead of the Westminster government in terms of um, it being proactive on the environment. They're still nowhere near as proactive as they should be. But if you look at some of the things that they've been doing uh, in, in terms of uh, addressing raptor persecution, which, which is uh, something that I've followed quite closely in Scotland, um, they have made lots of small steps towards trying to deal with it in complete contrast with Westminster government who just deny that there's even an issue and, and just told you mm -hmm. to go away. The Scottish government at least will acknowledge that there's a problem. They haven't taken the big strides that we want them to yet, although um, we think we're on the verge of that. Um, but what they've done in in the last few years, they've introduced various things. So something called vicarious liability, 
where the landowner can be prosecuted for the offence committed by an employee, say a gamekeeper, um, for certain types of rat persecution. So if, if you shot, if your gamekeeper has shot a buzzard on, on your estate and, and, um, you can show that it was the gamekeeper who did that, uh, there's the opportunity then to, to also prosecute the landowner. Um, the landowner has various lines of defense, of course, such as, uh, you know, they did, they didn't know the offense was being committed. They'd done everything in their power to, to make sure the gamekeeper knew that that sort of offense wasn't acceptable. Um, and that they'd taken all due diligence to, to ensure that crimes weren't being committed on the estate. That sounded quite good. That came into force in 2012. Um, it sounded very good, but in the last eight years that that has been an option, there have only been two successful prosecutions for vicarious liability, which uh, is not a good turnaround as, as far as I'm concerned. There have been lots of opportunities for other cases to be brought, and each time we've seen them dropped by the Crown Office. And when we've asked for an explanation about why, um, we get told it's not in the public interest tell you <laughs> so um that's not great um there's also something that they brought in called um, the general license restriction um so a general license is something that the statutory agencies so scottish natural heritage in scotland or natural england in, in england um issue these licenses that allow people to kill so-called pest bird species and there are so many people who want to kill these birds that these they don't issue individual licenses. Uh, that's why they're called general licenses. So the government will will issue them each year, stick them up on the website. And if you want to kill certain bird species under the authority of those licenses, all you have to do is read the license. So, um, Ruth, this is shocking. I'm sure people don't know this. This is just appalling. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm minded to say, come on, every pod listener, get out there with a placard and pick it your local MP's constituency office or whatever this is just shocking Richard you probably have practical advice I was going to try and be a bit optimistic for a second but uh, <laughs> hey, uh, yes do <laughs> your 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 advice there is is utterly practical and uh, uh lobbying your MP will always remain a really important thing to do I wouldn't necessarily suggest uh, getting out there and gathering in large numbers just no, at the moment currently not no. <laughs> and only if you're very socially distanced and you're wearing a mask exactly but 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 genuinely um that that old mailbag politics of of making uh, representations to MP still makes a really big difference, and things like the um, e actions that Ruth and others have uh, have organised um, around Hen Harrier Day, and um, all the brilliant work that the Badger Trust does on its issues, and the RSPB does around just raising attention around individual cases like that mm. terrible mm. case of a buzzard being shot down over a. RSPB Nature Reserve just last week. Um, raising these cases and putting them in front of MPs does make a difference. I guess the the positive note I wanted to, to raise was that I think that there is sign of movement at every level. I mean, I was heartened to see that the IPBES report on uh, on coronavirus, even uh, at that international level, highlighted uh, the importance of tackling the illegal wildlife trade as one of those anthropogenic. Uh, human-driven reasons why our environment becomes a petri dish for disease. You know, the more that we mix 
mm. man uh, with um, pristine natural habitats and drive up against natural boundaries, the more likely we are to, to, to create these risks. And that awareness is new. And at every level of political organisation, these things are starting to change. So things like um, you mentioned lead before, uh, the brilliant decision in the EU to, uh, to ban shooting with lead over wetlands uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, hopefully we'll have a process of shunting other countries forward and hopefully it will help us to go further on that issue and other issues here in the UK. And although I said it's never high enough on the political priority list, there are champions in Parliament for these issues and we need to be there to uh, to, to praise them when they do good work. Do That's true. We do. We do need to do that. And and we have also have champions, you know, in, in, in people like Ruth and her colleagues at World Justice and, and the use of, I think, the use of social media to get some of these messages out there because there is nothing so dramatic as a picture. And, and when people are confronted with that, and we know the power of images and we know the power, for example, you know, if you think back to Blue Planet and the plastic um, and how that really, really turned the tide, no pun intended, on how people felt about plastics. I mean, I think we've dropped back a bit from that now, but it was a huge, you know, it was a real game changer in terms of actually getting people aware of the subject matter and getting them on board and getting them thinking about behaving differently. So there are, so there is, a, you know, that's an enormous part of the contribution um, that social media and communications make to that. And, and I think, you know, it, it seems to me that the being able to have these kinds of conversations and, and I'm so grateful to both of you for being on the pod and to sharing, you know, your personal and professional insights into this, because this is an enormous area that we all need to be aware of. And these these birds and these species are very, very precious. And when they're gone, they're gone forever. And we cannot afford to let that happen. We have a duty to protect them. Um, so Ruth, enormous thanks to you. And, and do you have a kind of shout out that you'd like to, to give pod listeners? What would be the one thing you'd ask people listening to do to, to help support what you're doing or, or the wider issues? Um, I think well, it goes back to the, to the social media issue just amplifying people's messages, you know, messages from different organisations. It's so important to, to raise awareness. If we're not able to raise awareness, we're not able to put pressure on the politicians. It's as simple as that. So just something as simple as retweeting something, it's an easy thing to do, but it's very, very powerful if a lot of people are doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And Richard, thank you to you. And do you have a do you have a call out for, for pod listeners? What you would you ask of our listenership to do to help? I think it's important for everybody to be engaged in their communities to um, to help us to um, draw these things to light when they happen. Uh, one of the things that uh, the likes of RSPB and uh, police uh, and others rely on is is having people who are willing to speak out when they see wildlife crime happening. So. Um, be aware and tell folk about it and uh, as well as telling your politicians make sure that you speak to your local police force because at the moment um, they're not getting the resources and the backing that they need to, um, to to tackle this properly and it falls down the agenda for them as well so let's uh, let's make it very clear both to um, the authorities uh, and those uh, MPs that this is something that's uh, of, of critical interest to to millions of folk and uh, the government's giving us this little vehicle next year in its um, wildlife and welfare bill and for me focusing our attentions on that as a, uh, a potential moment of change and getting everybody behind the tough new sentencing the tough new regulations we need to crack down on some of these abominable actions is um, absolutely vital so let's be ready for a moment for change next year. 
Thank you. Yes, and we will be. So bottom up and top down. Ruth, it was fantastic to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And, and Richard, likewise, really, really interesting and keep up the great work. And perhaps we can have you back next year when the bill is, is on its way through Parliament so we can get into the, the, the nitty gritty and the meat of what's going on and ensure that people are both aware and informed and are lobbying in the right way. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Do follow us on Instagram or Twitter or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can download previous episodes, including the one about lead in shot. Um, why not make life easy and subscribe to the podcast via the website or on your app so we just pop into your inbox regularly. If you do get a moment, please review and rate the show and we really appreciate your feedback. So get in touch with comments and suggestions. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.